Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Jonathan Ames. He is the author of The Alcoholic, You Were Never Really Here, and many more fantastic novels, the creator of two television series, Blunt Talk and Bored to Death. His newest book is A Man Named Dahl, which is published by our friends at Mulholland Books. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, Jonathan, I want to ask you a two-part question. Uh, First, how have you been doing this past year during the pandemic? And second, do you anticipate the promotion of this new novel to be any different due to COVID-19? Or do you feel like we are getting to the other side of this thing? Um, well, uh, the past year has been, you know, like me, like for the whole world, you know, profoundly unusual. I mean, this is an unprecedented environmental tragedy crisis. I mean, so much suffering. Uh, it's just unfathomable. And I, I think we'll be, you know, it's like an earthquake. We'll be feeling the tremors of it for years. Um, for me personally, <clears throat> it's just been a very quiet year uh, for a writer. In some ways, you know, I was home a lot anyway um, and uh, live a somewhat isolated life, not a, an overly social person at this time in my life. But nevertheless, you know, the, the, sh- the stress, the sadness, um, I had someone close to me pass from COVID and um you know, very worried about my elderly parents, certainly in the beginning when, you know, it just seemed, uh, it was like, I, I went shopping at four o'clock in the morning at a supermarket. You, you just didn't know it was going to happen. And I loaded them up for a month. And, um, and, and now here we are 13, 14 months into it. Uh, so, um, but I, personally, I, I've been okay. I've been, you know, rather strict about it all. And, um, and just was very concerned about uh, getting anyone else ill. I, I mean, that was the, you know, the scary thing here. There was one's own, I, I felt, you know, personal safety, but then imagine if you inadvertently pass it on to someone who passed it on to someone who perished. And that's still the case, we're not out of this. But uh, people have learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I think the time of quiet, people have gotten closer to nature realize maybe they don't have to be as frantic, as busy, uh, looking outside themselves for consolation. Uh, So there's hopefully, you know, out of pain and suffering comes insight and growth. Um, As far as book promotion, you know, I I haven't had a, well, I guess I had a book come out three years ago. Um, You know, I never was a person who went on a lot of book tours, I guess. a certain point in my career, I lucked out. Some group did. I was part of like a little bit of a group book tour. I once uh, sort of paid for my own. So books coming out, my feeling about books coming out is they find their way, you know, and unless, you know, you've gotten some enormous advance and they fly you all over the country or something, it's, you know, you just, it's word of mouth. The reader is promotion. Um, and, uh, but it's interesting with the zoom and podcasts and virtual readings, 
you can actually do a lot more now in some ways, I think, as a writer than maybe in the past. Um, but uh, like I said, I think the ultimate promotion is the reader. And, and, and a book has a long life. You know, three years later, somebody finds it on a stoop. They read it. They like it. Hey, look this guy up, you know. So that's what I, I look towards or imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that answer, Jonathan. And I'm sorry for the passing of your friend. It's been a rough, crazy year for a lot of people. And I can identify with you saying that you went, you know, shopping to stock your parents up. Rebecca, who's in the background, um, sort of uh, technically moderating this podcast, actually came to my house and watched uh, my young son so I could go stock up uh, and do some apocalypse shopping. And it seems so long ago, but um, yeah, what a crazy year. Um, let's dive into this novel, Jonathan. Part of this novel, uh, a man named Daw deals with violence in an Asian spa. And as we sit here talking, we're still a couple of weeks away from the release of this novel. How are you reconciling current events, uh, which you surely were not anticipating when you wrote this novel with this aspect of your story? Uh, yeah, well, like you know, your question about COVID, another grotesque and horrible tragedy. Um, and, you know, just gun violence in this country is another kind of um, illness or virus. And then the attack on this spa, racism, another virus in our country. There's, we, we have a lot of problems. Um, out of problems, I want to be optimistic, can come solution and insight, but obviously we're very stuck as a culture in certain areas. Um, I, you know, in my novel, the character's a former cop, he's a private detective, he's not doing that well as a private detective, and he gets a job working security at a spa. Um, and I'm not sure where that idea came to my mind. I think I was reading in the LA Times about the spas all over LA, um, you know, sometimes there, they, you know, just there was a big article on the, the spa culture in LA. And in reading the article, I thought to myself that the women there could be in danger, that there's a lot of uh, unstable men primarily that might go in there for massages and something could happen. I don't know why I got that idea, but just in reading about it and I drive around LA, I, there's a lot of spas. And so I just imagine this guy, you know, working there at nights to protect the women. And, and that's why he's hired. And um, sure enough, one night, one of the men um, who's doing drugs goes berserk and he, uh, my character, Happy Doll has to, that's his name, he goes by Hank in the novel for the most part, has to intercede. So I, I certainly didn't anticipate that something so terrible as what happened in Georgia um, and, and I just, uh, I, I, you know, I mourn uh, the loss of life. Um, and I, uh, so I hope, well, I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, I, I mean, what's odd is in my other novel, You Were Never Really Here, the character uh, exfiltrates um, 
you know, children who have been abducted into um, child prostitution. That's like, because he had, that, that's his job and you were never really here, uh, off, off the books kind of situation. And at the time when the book came out, a number of people were like, that's a, a little far-fetched because there was like po politicians involved in all that. And then, you know, a few years mm -hmm. later, the Jeffrey Epstein thing, of course, came out politicians, mm -hmm. child prostitution. I mean, it's just, it's a, a society of ills. And that's why I sort of like the private detective always. He's, you know, the someone who's trying to help. In my uh, TV show, Bored to Death, the end of the first episode, the character, you know, he, he talks to one of his second client ever. He's a wannabe private detective. He said, Maybe I can help you. I, I, it was something like that. And so I, I've always been intrigued uh, with the private detective as, as a knight, someone who wants to help the, um, the vulnerable. Yeah, and I wish, I wish that what had happened in Georgia had never happened. Uh, and um, so just, uh, yeah, very difficult times. Uh, but the, I guess the history of humanity is difficult. I don't know. I'm not rationalizing it. I'm just. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for that answer, Jonathan. Um, I have a question for you about your protagonist, uh, Happy. Hank Dahl and question about his diet specifically. Um, there's a scene early in the novel where he is eating mackerel, but also eating VNAs. Uh, you don't often see uh, those diets that have consumed, but also using vegan condiment products crossing. Um, what's going on here? Does this tell us anything about Happy's character that he's eating fish with VNAs? Um, well, he, he's on a low budget. Um, and he wants, and he tries to eat healthy though. So he eats a lot of canned fish and, um, and mackerel would fall under that. You know, he, he eats a lot of herring, a lot of sardines, fish uh, that are lower in the food chain because I'll have less mercury. And, um, and I, and he, yeah, so he's trying, he's sort of health oriented and the vegan A's taste just as good. And he also, he's kind of half vegetarian. He's almost a pescatarian, but a sort of canned fish pescatarian. So he, he, he's very much a bachelor, a lot of canned soup, a lot of canned fish, uh, some apples, blueberries. Um, in fact, he sort of eats like me. Um, <laughs> so, um, and uh, I, I did go completely vegan during COVID, but I don't think I did it intelligently. I was eating sort of like I was in a bunker, uh, a lot of crackers and peanut butter because COVID was uh, you know, connected to our treatment of animals or perhaps connected to our treatment of animals, another societal issue. I went vegan, but I didn't do it intelligently and uh, I lost way too much weight and um, Someone saw me do a Zoom uh, performance for the moth, a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, and she said, your chi is completely depleted. And, and I woke up, I thought, you know, I think it is. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I realized I was starving. Um, and I hadn't eaten meat in over a year, but I, I had dropped down to like my weight, probably a sophomore in high school. I was about mm. you know, the high 130s. I should be around 155. I, you know, I got really skinny and all my muscles were gone. And 
so I went out and I don't feel good about eating animals, but I went out and bought two steaks and I cooked them on my frying pan. I ate them both in one day. And a friend of mine and I were going to call me two steak Johnny if I was a, a gangster. <laughs> anyway, but I'm on the rebound now. Um, and uh, anyway, so happy is unusual and he eats in an unusual way, mostly trying to uh, on a low budget, a lot of crackers, a lot of peanut butter. Uh, like I said, canned soup, mm. canned fish. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jonathan. It's too bad you're not here in Raleigh. Rebecca, who's in the background there, is a, a vegan baker. She makes all kinds of like cakes and cookies and is very good at it. And that'll, that would help you with uh, keeping that weight on with your vegan diet. I think um, it's the way to go. I just, I was, I was in this COVID bunker mentality. I didn't, I didn't, wasn't going to supermarkets a lot. And I would just see like, okay, how low, how low can my cupboard go without me not going anywhere? Mm. So, you know, it was like, <laughs> I was, and I was sort of convincing myself I was eating enough, I guess. I don't know. We all went a little nuts during this time. Yeah, we did. Um, thank you, Jonathan. There's another scene early on in this novel when Happy is reading The Great Santini by Pat Conroy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pat Conroy, who is some, was somewhat local to us here in North Carolina. Um, and the narrator states, uh, that he um, is a sucker for sadistic daddy books with a military angle. Uh, first, what does this tell us about our protagonist and maybe his relationship with his father? And second, besides the great Santini, uh, are there other sadistic daddy books with a military angle? Um, good question. Uh, yeah, so it was meant to tell us about um, happy. He, he had a very difficult relationship with his father, who was a naval man. Happy's father, uh, mother died in childbirth, and which broke his father. And so he was raised by a single dad in San Diego. And the father was hard drinking and uh, somewhat cruel to Happy. And yet Happy wanted to love him and find peace. And so in a sense, maybe that's why he's drawn to the books. It was almost a, a way to be with his dad. That said... I'm not sure beyond the great Santini that I know of um, or happy knows of others. So he may have been, um, uh, yeah, that I, I don't know if I could back that up with others, uh, but um, I'm sure there were, <laughs> um, but yeah. So, and yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, what's that great Pat Conroy book? Wasn't it, didn't he teach English off of uh, an island off of the coast of North Carolina or South Carolina. South Carolina, I think. South Carolina, yeah. and uh, it became that wonderful movie. I mean, at least that's my memory of it years ago. But yeah, uh, I think he had like the Prince of Tides, and um, he did write a book called Lords of Discipline. I think, which mm-hmm. maybe maybe that would fit into this uh, context. Yeah. Listeners, if you know any. Um, sadistic daddy books with a military angle right in and let us know uh thank you for that answer jonathan listeners uh, I, I could think of one other yeah. sadistic daddy book oh uh, yeah good good um bukowski's father oh, is yeah. very cruel um there's um in one of bukowski's novels i i don't know if maybe it's ham on rye it begins with uh, his childhood and his father was so cruel to him and mm-hmm. beat him quite a lot. And I think that was the probably the beginning of uh, Bukowski's acne vulgaris, you know, that all this 
toxicity inside from these beatings by his father caused him to mm -hmm. produce this terrible acne and to seek comfort in alcohol for the next 70 years or 60 years once he you know got out of childhood anyway but that's not mm -hmm. military right still would be an interesting uh, reading group reading pat conroy and then bukowski um Thank you for that, Jonathan. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Jonathan Ames. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Jonathan Ames, author of A Man Named Doll, which is published by our friends at Mulholland Books. Jonathan, uh, to step back away from the book for a moment, can you tell us what is the difference in your processes and approaches between writing a novel and writing for television? Um, yeah, good question. Um, well, with writing for television, you're usually under pretty strict deadline because you've got production and all these people involved if you know the, the show is happening. And, um, and the, a comedy script is about 30 pages. And also going into the script, if you're working with a, a writer's room, you've outlined the whole thing together. And then I would do the writing. Now, recently I did write a TV pilot without a, a writing a writer's room. Um, and so I did all the outlining myself. And, and, but a, a script is, is a little bit more formal. It's not quite like poetry, but you have such parameters. Mm -hmm. And you also have to write for you know, the audience, which is the crew, these executives, the people who are going to put up the money. So it, it's going to be a document. It's like a roadmap, a roadmap for the crew, how to shoot something. It's a, a sales document to make sure people like it. It's got to move fast. Um, so a lot of different things come into it. And, um, and you know, you really, you've, you have this structure from Final Draft, which is the program for writing scripts. And you've got to be explicit. Interior, uh, you know, living room, night, you know, so everyone knows what's going on. Um, that said, once you're writing the sentences, there's still the same kind of joy and pleasure and trying to write a good sentence, a funny sentence, a good line of dialogue. Um, and so when I'm in the mode of writing, in some ways, the creative, the creative feeling is the same. And, um, and I always have a goal, whether it be scripts or novels, to you know, try to get two or three pages a day done. And then you eventually get there. Novels are much more you know, you're, it's all free floating. You've got to put it all on the page for the reader. And also you don't have to be quite as economic 
as you do in a script. With a script, you you, you can't fill up a lot of space with what everyone's wearing. You, you can do enough, or if it's important to you, you get it down. So novels, there's just much greater freedom, um, and um, but it you know they're they're ultimately harder, <laughs> uh, longer to to write. Um, they're like marathons. A TV script is more like a, a, a you know a mile race, um, and but the the pleasure in trying to craft a good sentence and entertain the reader, whether it be the film crew or an actor or the reader out in the world, remains the same. Absolutely, thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, let's dive back into this book now. A man named Dahl. Uh, part of the trouble that. Uh, happy gets into is he kills a man who is attacking one of the ladies that works at this spa where he's a security guard, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and the guy that he kills is the son of a policeman. Uh, there was really no other choice but to shoot the attacker, but the police give happy an incredibly hard time, despite the fact that he is ex police himself. Uh, what is going on in police culture where they are so protective of their own, uh, why not let criminals who also happen to be police or are related to police suffer the same consequences as everyone else? And of course, I ask this question as um, there's a high profile um, police murder trial going on right now. Um, yeah, so, well, first of all, Happy didn't want to kill this man. Uh, it was, uh, he was hoping to shoot him in the leg. They had had a brutal fight and he didn't want, it was the first person he'd ever killed. He didn't want to take a life and he profoundly regrets this. Um, I have the cops be hard on happy. It's a little bit of a trope in private detective novels that, you know, going back to you know, uh, the Maltese Falcon to, you know, all the Raymond Chandler novels, cops are always very hard on private detectives. So that that's part of it. Um, I, you know, it's interesting, I, I guess, you know, you write a book and you end up touching on all these very uh, potent societal problems. I can't speak myself to police culture, or what's going on. Um, in the world, but again, this is another area that we need greater compassion and, and kindness. I mean, it, we're such a struggling uh, world and uh, to, you know, it's unfortunate, again, everything that's going on. I, I don't know that I, it's out of my pay grade, as it were, to comment on all these things. Um, I do know that Obviously, there are many fine policemen, you know, and if you are in trouble, you're happy when they show up. But at the same time, again, like gun violence and racism and, you know, there's systemic problems. And um, and so I don't it's, uh, you know, it, there's a, there's there needs to be reform. And uh, I. I, I hope in our lifetimes we might see it. Um, but in the meantime, there's terrible suffering and injustice. And, and I think maybe that's why I create, for me, the, uh, the avatar of the private detective, the guy who's trying to stand up 
for the little guy. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the same thing with my book, You Were Never Really Here. And, and maybe, and I, I once, uh, I had a passage in A Man Named Doll, which was like, you know, you got to fight the good fight, even if the odds are against you. And I was once on this Greenpeace boat embedded as a journalist in the early 2000s. And the, the, the most beautiful people from all over the world were on this boat working this ship. We were up in Alaska. They were looking into all the logging issues, the deforestation of the land. And these were, you know, young people from Brazil, Israel, you know, Poland. It was incredible, this crew, the U.S. too, of course. And, um, and I asked all of them, do you think the planet's going to be all right? Are we going to make it? And all of them more or less said, the planet will make it, but humans probably won't. And we're probably not going to win this fight, but we at least have to try. And it was, in, it was a sobering and interesting uh, thing, all of their takes. And here were people, you know, on the front lines of trying to do what was right by the planet. And another interesting thing that happened is we arrived in, I think it was the town of Sitka. The, the boat pulled into Sitka, a rainy day. And there were like little prop planes in the air. It was really rainy. Couldn't, uh, boats coming out into the, the, the channel you know, playing music, uh, they're going nuts because Greenpeace 10 years before had been instrumental. I think it was Sitka, um, I'm sorry, my memory's not that good. It was 2003, about 18 years ago. Greenpeace had been instrumental in um, shutting down some kind of plant that was causing a lot of cancer. So Greenpeace was welcomed into this harbor like heroes, but there was one jerk on the docks screaming, going, you're wrecking our country, you're taking our women, you're turning us into like this crazy stuff. One guy and then a young woman, one of the crew members was like lashing the boat to the thing and he grabbed her. And Greenpeace is all about nonviolent, um, nonviolence, you know, yeah. out of the Gandhi school of trying to create change. And so she just stood there while he was shaking her. And then all, all the guys on the boat came flying like, you know, monkeys swinging from the various levels of the boat. It, it was an old uh, a nurse ship from the Navy or something. And they all stood around her until the cops came and dragged this guy off. But there was a horrible principle here. Here were like a hundred people cheering. And yet one guy, uh, confused, violent, drew all the attention. And I mm -hmm. feel that there are more good people in the world than bad, let's say, or maybe no one's bad, but their heart's in the right place. But one person who's a bit nuts, like you need 10 good people to counteract it or something. I don't know. I, I'm, mm -hmm. There's some, anyway, happy had some sort of passage about that, that for one uh, very confused, uh, destructive person, you need 10 people more listing towards the side of love and compassion and to overcome this. Anyway, this is all to say that there's, you know, we're a, a confused species, but you know, if we move towards compassion and kindness and there is so much more love and compassion in the world. I mean, uh, you go to any hospital and you see it. I mean, people are caring for others all around the world. And so let's just, 
you know, emphasize that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jonathan. You remind me, um, talking about the, the climate, we had, um, our friend Bill Volman, who had written two like mammoth volumes on climate change in Raleigh, um, relatively recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, um, you know, he had gone on this whole 40 minute, um, diatribe kind of about climate change. And then someone asked him, Hey, Bill, is it, uh, do you think it's too late? He's like, yes. End of, you know, (laughs) that was the end of his answer. Um, but yeah, it's a, we've gotten ourselves in a mess, but you're right. We have to try. Um, Speaking of a mess, Jonathan, uh, Happy in this novel is on a lot of drugs. Um, can you tell us what drugs he is on and why? Well, um, he's a bit of a troubled person. So he tries to drink in moderation, usually tequila, because maybe someone told him tequila was a little bit healthier. I mean, he's a private detective, but he does try to be healthy. And he was, you know, but he, he drinks very minimal amounts of tequila. Uh, he smokes marijuana. Um, and, but at this point, the marijuana doesn't really impact him. Like he doesn't really get high anymore. It almost does it out of habit. And as he says, it's a placebo. Um, and then because he gets so severely injured in his fight, um, at the spa, uh, they put him on Dilaudid because his face gets brutally cut open. And I was once given Dilaudid, uh, I'd had a hand surgery. And it was very powerful drug. And I was on it for like a month. Luckily, I didn't get hooked, though. You know, it was an interesting month. And I think I might have gotten it refilled maybe one time too many or just like, uh, I guess I'm still in pain. (laughs) And they refilled it for me. Um, And but I never forgot, you know, that Dilaudid experience. I I guess you're a baseball fan because of the shirt you're wearing. And Mm -hmm. Uh, I was on the Dilaudid, I think it was the 2012 World Series, and I just sat there, and I, and I had no appetite, and I was just eating, uh, there was this, um, I don't know, was it not smart food or something? There were, there were these, like, cheese tart, pop, t- like, I don't know, some, I never eat usually stuff out of a plastic bag if possible, you know, it's not really food anymore, but I, I just enjoyed that World Series sitting there in my Dilaudid haze, um, Anyway, um, and so then at another point, because he's on the Dilaudid but needs to wake up, he had someone had given him Adderall, which he had never taken before, um, uh, to wake him up from the mm-hmm. Dilaudid so he could try to track down, uh, you know, the killers that he's looking for in the book. So I guess it's uh, he's on tequila, marijuana, Dilaudid, and Adderall. Oh, and then at another point, he's put on fentanyl. And then later he's put on morphine. He's, you know, he really, he, he's in a lot of pain. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. And I, I believe I was enjoying that 2012 World Series too. I was living in San Francisco for several years. Oh, and wow. The Giants peak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that Madison Bumgarner, right? I mean, like the guy was yeah. just like indomitable. And I always, yeah. what was the name of that, the skinny right-hander? um that was great Lincecum. oh yeah i always liked him right? tim tim Lincecum. yeah tim Lincecum. he's a uh on my desk i've got a tim Lincecum bobblehead oh and... wow man <laughs> yeah I, that guy was great i i always feel bad when whether through an injury or something you know i mean at, mm-hmm. at, athletes lives or their careers are you know brief 
Um, mm-hmm. he, he was fun to watch. I, I really liked that team. For, I just remember really enjoying that World Series. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Finally, um, I want to ask you a question about Happy's friend, uh, Rick Alvarez. He is a, a realtor, um, and he's described as a good Googler. Um, and then uh, Happy says, some people have this skill and some don't. What, Jonathan, is a good Googler? Is this something that someone can put on a resume? You know, this is a mystery because I, I'm, you know, I was born in 1964. I wrote my first novel by hand or used a typewriter. Um, I'm still on AOL. I'm very, I'm like a no adapter or a late adapter or a confused adapter. And I've noticed that certain friends, you know, are just so good at Googling. Like, how'd you get that information? Like I Googled and didn't get anything. Like, I don't know if they like go through a million things or you put in better search words or they just, I, I don't know. So it's, and I, I just haven't found out why some people are better at it than others. They just might be more diligent. They go through a million pages or better search words, but they just seem to get at the information better than I do. Um, and then I, I had this friend, he always called it, I did a deep Google or something like somehow <laughs> went deep. <laughs> and uh, so it's a mystery to me, but I think some people are better at it than others. And I don't, I don't know what it is. Are you a good Googler? Do you consider yourself a good Googler? I don't know. I think so. I mean, I feel like I always find the information I'm looking for, or at least the information that Google wants me to have. Um, but I know nothing about deep Googling. So now I'm a little perplexed. I'm going to have to figure that out. I think that was his own phrase. But I mean, it's so interesting to think, at least for me, because when the inter- when did the internet hit, really? It was kind of like the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. I mean, for the first more than half of my life, you couldn't just open a computer and get information like you just I don't know you, you didn't you didn't have that ability I mean here's a quick funny story in 1986 because it's a bookstore I ran into Allen Ginsberg on the street in New York City and I went are you Allen Ginsberg and like you know just all stunned and everything told him I wanted to be a writer and and he and that I was interested in the beat generation he said go to the Naropa Institute in Boulder and take a writing class. I'm like, okay, I will. And I quit the job I had at a restaurant, somehow found, again, you would have, I went to like the local hostel and on the board, there were notices, like people would put up a thing on a, you know, a piece of paper. I need someone to help me drive a a VW van to, you know, Denver. So I contacted the guy, I drive, drive to Denver. I then take a bus from Denver to the Naropa Institute. I didn't even call them. I just showed up there, you know, mm-hmm. probably because I didn't even know how to get the phone number. I just showed up. And then I show up there and I find out it was really expensive. I kind of thought because it was beat generation, I could take a class cheaply and I couldn't afford any of it. So suddenly I was stuck in Boulder. And I'm just saying in the age of the internet, I would have known everything. I wouldn't have driven cross country. I wouldn't have shown up, but it was just a different time. And uh, anyway, it's just a I don't know. I I miss it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's still an adventure, and really, if Allen Ginsberg tells you to do something, you got to do it, right? Yeah, and I had a, I had a great trip cross country. Ended up taking buses all over the Southwest, and you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't hitchhiking like the you know Kerouac and all those people, mm-hmm. but 
uh, you know, again, wasn't a safe maybe, but I took buses everywhere. <laughs> and back then people could smoke on buses and I wasn't a smoker. So I would wrap my head in like, like my shirt because it was so thick. Even if you could only smoke on the back, the whole bus would be full filled. Yeah. Wow. Different times. Um, well, thank you so much, Jonathan. And thank you for writing this wonderful uh, and timely book. I was incredibly entertained and listeners. I know you will be too. Uh, I have been speaking with Jonathan Ames, author of A Man Named Doll, which is published by our friends at Mulholland Books. Jonathan, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me and great chatting with you. Jonathan Ames for joining me. Copies of A Man Named Doll can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, and get one free audiobook while supporting your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been...